All right, so now we're going to do part two of uh, diabetes care. This is a little loud. Turn that down. There we go. All right. <clears throat> what I did here was I broke down the uh, nursing roles in patient education. And the biggest role in, for, for managing patients when they have diabetes is, your, is patient education. Uh, when people get diagnosed, and we're going to be talking a lot right now about type, type, mostly about type 1. The type 2, some of this would occur if they are ordered uh, to get insulin injections. Uh, they might have to do some of this, some of this teaching. Um, some of this also does apply if, if they're not getting insulin, there's still a lot of this would, would apply outside of the insulation, insulation administration. <laughs> insulin administration. No, don't give them uh, fiberglass insulation. Uh, so I'll go through each of, the, each of the, the, the steps because this really is your role as a nurse. The endocrinologists are the one who have to figure out, well, just how much insulin do they need. Remember we talked about it being team, team effort, but in the, the nursing part is, is the teaching, and so we'll, we'll talk about that. So one of the first things is just understanding what it is, and that, of course, uh, there's a lot of... Uh, misconceptions, there's a lot of people because they may have somebody in the family with type 1 and now they're diagnosed with type 2 or the other way around, there can be confusion. They might think, well, I know about diabetes because grandma has it. But this is a 7-year-old with type 1 can be different from grandma's type, type 2. So they have to understand that what is actually, actually going on here. I've had some elderly clients, they, they refer to it as the sugar diabetes. I got the sugar diabetes, and you know it's nothing nothing wrong with that because it does emphasize the blood the blood glucose. Uh, in many cases, with the type one particularly, it's a sudden life change. So keep that in mind. In that, when you're talking with families, talking with kids, you're talking about with, about somebody who last week never even knew that they were going to be going through through this. Like a lot of illnesses that can occur very rapidly. Uh, they, they, you go from being healthy, never even thinking about something like this affecting you, to now suddenly this is part of your life. They also have to understand that it is currently considered a chronic illness. This is something that you're going to be dealing with for the rest of your life, uh, with, with, particularly with the type 1. Now, the type 2, there's evidence that changing and change in diet and lifestyle uh, can reduce it. In fact, on 60 Minutes last night, there was a thing on uh, gastric bypass surgery, and they found that one of the side effects of that has been 80% um, of folks with type 2 diabetes no longer have it after the gastric by bypass surgery. Nobody's exactly sure why it occurs so rapid. That occurs so rapidly because even before the weight loss, they 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 start improving. Yes. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people were saying within four days to two weeks they, their type 2 diabetes was gone. I didn't know the details of it, but the study they referred to said that about 80% 80, 80 of folks with gastric bypass surgery do end up not needing the oral um, medications for, for type 2 diabetes. They had one who, she had type 2, but also was using insulin, and she didn't need to use the insulin anymore. So it is a chronic illness, which means that this, you know, it, with all chronic illnesses, this is something that you have to learn to accept as something that you're going to be dealing with every day. 
there's going to be a lot of new skills, and this, is, and this often is a, an area that can trip up some people. If you're very afraid of injections, very afraid of needles, you have to get over a lot of that, a lot of that anxiety. There's also, if you've never thought much about your diet, um, you just and, and, and maybe don't know a lot about nutrition, a lot of nutritional information. This can be all new. Uh, the whole idea of glucose testing. A lot of people really aren't used. They may have heard about uh, I've got sugar, I've got hypoglycemia. They may have heard that. They know that there might be this thing called sugar in your bloodstream, but they don't know much else about it. And the fact that you can test it yourself is all all new to them. And of course, giving yourself an injection. Um, is very scary. Usually when you talk to people about it, that's the one thing that they'll say, oh, that, that whole idea of having to give myself injections really, really scares me. Um, uh, and of course, there's also risks involved. There's short-term risks that you have to teach about. The hypoglycemia, how do you respond to it? Hyperglycemia, how do you respond to it? Other complications that are, can occur. And also the long-term risks. And with kids, these can be the hard, much, much harder to teach because kids don't normally think of themselves in any kind of long-term way whatsoever. And the idea that I, by taking care of myself today, I'll be in better health when I'm 70 just doesn't really uh, ring real tr uh, like it has a lot of relevance to them. There we go. So another the next part about that. So there, so you have that's what they have to understand. That's ba all the all the the areas they have to sort of start un understanding. But before you can really learn, you have to accept. And uh, some nurses have done some qualitative studies where they talk to people who have been diagnosed. And one of the things that keeps coming out is this concept of acceptance. Um, and you have it, it actually the research shows that people go in with type 1 diabetes go through phases where they first have to accept the fact that yes I have diabetes uh, then that they then the, progressing to needing insulin the fact that they can then care for themselves and finally that their whole lifestyle now will be changed and will be working around having having this disease so it's not just saying I'm diabetic. It's it's all of these phases, and when they talk to people who've been diagnosed, they all go through a, this this uh, very similar progression. Uh, and so, but the the key point there on that. Let me go back to. Come on, there we go. The key point. Uh, there is that it's not just learning facts. You know, a lot of times when you uh, students write care plans, knowledge deficit, they need to know this. And so you think that if you walk in, you teach it, they'll say, okay, they'll understand it all and go home and take care of themselves. But if people don't accept it, that none, none of your teaching is really going to sink in. That's, so that's the key point. So along with your teaching, you have to make sure you're giving people a chance to talk about this idea of themselves being diabetic when you're in, in school nurse settings and things like that, too. That's something that probably would be a good idea for school nurses um, to, to talk about. One of my uh, students a few years ago who had type 1 diabetes, she formed a little lunch group discussion discussion group is one of her projects uh, and brought in other girls the just I think she just got girls who had diabetes and and they had a dis, they had a discussion about the whole about diabetes and how it af affected them uh, and it seemed to really help uh, the nurse told me it seemed to she said it she found that it really helped with those girls um, incorporate having uh, diabetes as part of their part of their life okay self-monitoring
the, the big advance on this is glucometers. Did I tell you, did I talk to you about glucometers on Friday? How they're relatively new? Did I say that or not? I can't remember some, okay. Uh, glucometers, as in the electronic form that you're used to, you can go down to Rite Aid and you can buy some of these for uh, less than $20, uh, up, to, up to more expensive ones. Uh, the key with the glucometers is what they sell them, is they're like the uh, razor blades. They, they pretty much give you the holder because they want you to come back and buy the blades, right? And it's the same thing. They give you, they, they, they're giving away the, this device because they want you to buy the strips, the test strips of where, the money, where all the money is. Um, but the idea of being able to monitor yourself, your, your own blood at home is relatively new. And, and the accuracy and performance has really improved. This is an older one that just used a color change. You put the drop of blood on there and then it just timed it and looked at a color change. And based on the color change, it's kind of like dip, if you have dipped urine and checked it against something, it was using that. It was pretty good but not, not uh, as accurate as it could be. They require a lot of, a lot of careful calibration each and every time you, you use them. Um, but it was a real breakthrough in being able to check your urine, or check your, your blood, because before, you used, the only way to check your blood glucose was to check your urine. And what's wrong with just checking your urine for blood glucose? Your blood glucose is way high. Does anybody, did you know what, did you look ahead in the notes, you read? What, what's the blood glucose have to be before you start seeing it in the urine? 180. In some cases, even higher, depending on, on your um, kidney. So, so you're at least 180 when you're seeing um, sugar in your urine. So it used to be that was the way that people checked. In fact, that was the way that physicians in the 19th century actually diagnosed people with with diabetes, you stuck your finger in the pee, gave it a little taste, it was sweet, and you knew they had the, they had the sugar diabetes. Be glad you're not a physician in the 19th century. <laughs> um, remember I was telling you about how they would see flies going around the pee on the ground and everything, it was the, it was, it's, that, it's the sugar in there. So, so being able to check at home has now given people at home the ability to see, are they keeping their blood glucose at a level that a, that a, a person without type 2 diabetes uh, would have. Um, this, these are little stylets that have a little, a little needle in the end for, for checking, uh, for drawing the blood. And this is a spring-loaded device where you can, put this, you can put the stylet in. A lot of people have a hard time just taking the stylet and, and getting it in just right, because it doesn't have to go in real hard. You don't, need to have, you don't need to be digging out pieces of flesh to get a little bit of blood out. Uh, and what the stylets do is just have it come out just enough and just fast enough that it gets, it gets enough blood and then, you, and then you can milk the blood out because you, you just need a little drop. And when you're going to be doing this several times a day, you don't want to be uh, putting giant uh, holes in your, in your finger every time. Now here's a here's a boy demonstrating a, a finger stick. And notice that he's doing you do it on the sides of your finger. You don't do it on the in the tips of your finger. Why is that, Dana? Right. There's a lot of nerve endings on your fingertips. In fact, it has almost the most number of nerve endings of any other part of your body. There's only one other part of your body that has more nerve endings 
per square millimeter, but that's, not, that's for another class. Um, so you don't want to be putting, uh, putting things directly on the, on the fingertips. Also, some of the, uh, some of the um, glucometers now are advertising that you can draw, you can draw the blood from, from a forearm. Anybody here familiar with that? Anybody used any of those? You have? What do you think of those? Use it on the palm or your lower arm. Does it work? Have you tried it? Fingertips are still easier. I, Dana? I have the floor. I'm going to use it like right here. Okay. Oh, in there. Okay. You like it better. Right, because there's many fewer nerve endings per square millimeter in, in your forearm compared to down by the ends of your, your finger. So that's, that's the big advantage. You, if you've seen the commercial with B.B. King, because he plays the guitar, he has to, you know, you don't want to be. He doesn't want to be callousing up his fingers more than they already are. Um, okay, so the idea with blood glucose monitoring is you're trying to maintain a fasting blood glucose, and that means before you've eaten, if you eat, haven't eaten in for at least four hours, just before you eat, your blood glucose shouldn't be greater than 110. It can be down to 70. Once it starts getting below 50, we're starting to think about being hypoglycemic. So you're trying to get in that 70 to, 1, to 110 range. And, that's, you know, and a lot of that is going to vary depending on how much you've had to eat in the morning, uh, how much uh, insulin you, you took. If you took a little higher dosage and didn't eat as much in the morning than before lunch, you might find yourself lower. On the other hand, if you did your normal but you uh, had a tasty cake on the way in that you didn't normally eat, then you might find yourself on the high end or above, above 110. What is found over the long-term care is, is trying to minimize the number of times you go over 110. Now, you're going to go over that when you eat, but the insulin will, should then help carry that glucose into the cells, use it up, and then you won't um, have the, the long-term side effects. There are another test that can be done from the blood is called glycosylated beta hemoglobin. Now that is not something that's usually done at home. That's going to be a test that you send to the lab. Why would we be interested in that? Uh, it's also, you might also see it called hemoglobin A1C because it gives you an average blood glucose for the last two to three months. Why do we want that number? What's, what's the advantage to a clinician for that number? Anybody familiar with hemoglobin? Katie. Right, because what you're looking at is saying that just because somebody comes into the doctor's office and, and is low, uh, they have a, they, let's say their blood glucose is 90, that doesn't mean that yesterday they were, weren't 400, and every day before that they were 400. It might mean they just gave themselves some insulin before they came in. So this gives you an idea of, of uh, how well people are are doing. We're trying to get below seven. What you find is, is that a lot of diabetics have, will have blood glucose ranges above seven, between like seven, and, and if they're really out of control, you'll see numbers like 15, up to 15, and things like that. So that means that these are people that are routinely getting hyperglycemic. And so then the, their care is going to have to be directed in how can we keep them from, from uh, doing that. Uh, the urine tests are really not used uh, much anymore. They are still used in places where uh, healthcare uh, funding is very low. 
in many parts of the world where you don't have the availability of glucometers and, and things like that, it's still, it's still used. So if you ever hear about it, you should understand where that came from. Now there are, there are some, some weird things that can happen too, and if you go in your readings, you'll get a lot more, more detail about this, but there's a dawn phenomenon and a samogi phenomenon, and this is where uh, in the dawn phenomenon, there's a rise in your serum glucose overnight. So even though you take your blood, even though you take your insulin before you go to bed, and even though you're not eating, the blood glucose begins um, to, to rise. Normally your blood glucose uh, would begin would 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 go down uh, through the night as you're using up your as you're using up your your glucose for the day. Uh, they don't go into hypoglycemia on over overnight. So generally, what they do is uh, will adjust. If you're finding people having this problem, they'll adjust their their blood glucose. One of the ways that you have the problem is with trying to figure out what people are having is you have to actually test their blood glucose during several times during the night. Uh, for this to happen. So they'll either change the insulin dose or maybe give your hour of sleep insulin at a different time. Um, with, the, with the Samogi effect, you have a hypoglycemia overnight, and then just as you get towards uh, the morning, you get this rebound with, um, the, it, with the, you become hyperglycemic. Uh, and so what they do there is generally decrease the amount of insulin that you have before you go to bed. And or, and or give you a smaller dose in morning insulin. Okay, so here's some important numbers to know. Fasting is 70 to 100. An hour after eating, it really shouldn't be more than um, 150. Uh, you'll see the term postprandial, postprandial. That's referring, that's, that prandial is after eating. So antiprandial, before eating, postprandial, after eating. It's a fancy word that you may never, never see except when you're talking with people that work with uh, people with diabetes. Two hours after eating, you should be below 120. So if you're getting the right amount of insulin, these are, these are the numbers that should be, should be happening. Yes? How long does it take? Oh, it can take a matter of minutes. I mean, just a matter of minutes. If, you have, if you're hypoglycemic and um, we give you some straight, something with straight glucose, something that doesn't require a, any processing, you'll see the blood sugar go up within, within minutes. In fact, when we talk about hypoglycemia, you'll see that, that uh, even just giving somebody some orange juice to drink, you'll actually watch them come, come around within, within a minute. Okay, let's look at insulin administration. Uh, there's a lot of different insulins. I, th I told you in the past there were animal insulins, there was pork and beef insulins. They're no longer available. You still may hear some people talk about them. You may see some um, writings on them. Uh, we all now use a, a human analog uh, insulin and then, the, and then the insulin molecule is modified where they, where they add uh, things to it that slow down the way it's able to um, act. So you have a Humalog insulin Lispro, which is an immediate acting, and then there's a regular insulin, which is called Humalin. Um, you'll see people either use one or, one or the other, sometimes, sometimes both, depending on the time of 
depending on the time of day or what activities they're using or how quickly they need the response. Uh, generally, the human insulin you can, you can take, the humulin you can take 30 minutes before meals, but you have to eat. And that's another thing to keep in mind in that when you're taking care of somebody in a hospital and they're due for their insulin, you want to make sure that they, that they do eat. Um, in hospitals where the trays come at a certain time, um, and so you might get in the habit of saying, okay, the trays are going to be here at 5.30, so at 5 I'm going to give the insulin, and the trays are late, uh, the person can get hypoglycemic. So you want to keep track of that. So if you ever have anybody who's getting their insulin before they eat, uh, and you're seeing 30 minutes have gone by and the tray isn't there, what could you do? Hmm? Yeah, give them some crackers, give them something just to wait for that, for that tray to come up so they don't get hypoglycemic. And crackers are a good choice because why? They're easy to find. And what else about crackers? It's a carb, but what kind of carb? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a little more complex. You know, if it was a, if it was a whole grain, it would be better. But it's it's um, it takes a little. It's it's not like just eat, opening up a sugar packet and putting it on their tongue or something like that. Um, one of the things to keep in mind too with, with insulin is you really can't predict the dose. When you're having uh, your drugs, you may be used to looking at a drug guide and seeing, oh, there's 100 milligrams per kilogram, you know, and so you just look at their weight, you figure out how much they're giving, and you, and you, and you say, okay, that's the right amount. When it comes to insulin, uh, everybody can be different. And so a lot of, there's a lot of um, changes that occur from the time of diagnosis to later on because actually even in, even in the early stages of, di of the disease, uh, your insulin needs will change. Uh, as your activity levels change, they will change. One of the other things with kids is because they go, are getting bigger and growing, their insulin needs change. As they go from being a little six-year-old to being an 18-year-old, their insulin needs are going to, to change. And so it can be very, very hard to predict. And uh, two other kinds of insulins that you don't see as much, uh, although you might have some patients that are still using it, are the NPH or Lente, which is an intermediate acting, and Ultra Lente, which is a long acting. And this was the idea that we can give along with the short acting insulin for, for the meal times, because when you eat, remember you, you were asking Gene about how long does it take? Well, it's pretty immediate that your blood sugar begins to rise. But you also need to have a small amount of insulin through the day because your cells continue to need um, glucose. So you have to have some kind of insulin there. And so they develop slower, longer acting. It's kind of like, I always like to think of these as time-released insulin. They take, long, they, took, they take longer to be used. And so there's a lot of stuff, and you can read about it in the book, about how you mix it. Like if somebody has a regular, like sometimes you'll see they're ordered to have a regular and NPH together. And there's some very specific rules about what can be drawn when so that you're not contaminating one bottle over the other. I don't have any questions like that on the, on the test. We're, we're trying, generally what I've seen, at least in pediatrics, I don't know about with what you may have seen with your older adults, but we're moving away from doing, from doing that. What they're going to now is using usually either Humalog or Humulin and then Lantus at night. Lantus is a brand name for insulin glargine, which is a long-acting insulin. Uh, it has a lot better properties than either the NPH or the Ultralente. Ultralente, and because uh, it gives you almost 24 hours of coverage. 
It doesn't have big peaks, and it gives, gives a nice slow um, release of the of the insulin, and so it so it covers you uh, for uh, through the night and through the day. So this this is usually given at night. Uh, this just shows a little a little time thing showing here how the Humalog is going real fast. The regular comes pretty fast but lasts a little longer. The Lente goes here and then the Ultra Lente spreads out. The difference is if I drew Lantus on here, it would go like this. It would go up and then just go straight across and then slowly fade after 24 hours. But it would stay almost level through that 24-hour period. That's, that's the big advantage to Lantus and that's why it's really taken over over uh, the NPH uh, or the Ultralente. Does anybody have any patients or know of any patients that are doing NPH? Have you seen any? I haven't even seen any in our settings, but we're in pediatric settings where people are newer diagnosed generally. Nobody, any, any of your with geriatric settings have seen it? No? Okay. I think we might be coming to a time soon where we won't be talking about these anymore. Just like we don't talk much about the, you know, we used to have to talk about all the precautions with pork and beef insulins, which we don't even don't even bother with anymore. Here's a little chart, just to give you an idea of uh, some some more timing details. Um, I have seen charts that sometimes show slightly different figures. I'm never, go, I'm not going to ask any questions for you to to memorize the the exact numbers, but you should understand that Lantus is long acting, lasts for a day, given at night, and then the Humalog or the regular are short acting and are usually given uh, closer to meals, usually just before you eat. Now, in it, one of the things that we do um, for the newly diagnosed patients at DuPont is we do a correction factor where we look at, say, what, are, what, are you, what was your blood glucose before you eat? We don't give them insulin before they eat. What we do is give them insulin after they eat because it depends on what their glucose was before the meal. And then we add in what was the amount of carbs that they ate at that meal. Factor those two things together, come up with, come up with their insulin dose. Okay. Quickly, get out your remote controls. Max fasting blood glucose is, without looking at your notes, see if you can do it without looking at your notes. Thirty-seven responses, is that, I think that seems to be what we have here. Wow, okay, 97% chose 110. And that is right. Good. Okay, I've decided I'm, I've, I'm, throwing, I'm trying to use, do you like this? Is this fun? Okay, I, I think it's fun. <laughs> I'm having a good time. I don't know about you. But what I want to do is reinforce some of the main facts. So if you see these things and these questions, these are things you got to know, right? Okay? You got to know. Um, any, any questions on, on insulin? Any comments about insulin itself? Generally, insulin needs to be, I don't think I, I covered this in a slide, but it does need to be cared for carefully. It is a complex protein. Uh, it's a long, very long, complicated protein, which means you don't shake the bottle because <laughs> you'll actually break up those protein molecules. Uh, 
it generally needs to be kept in cool conditions. Kept in, so it's usually stored in a restored in a refrigerator. Um, does anybody know? I don't know. I haven't looked into seeing. Is there any length of time where it can be? It's, it's okay to be out at room temperature. Do you know? It lasts longer, yeah. Okay. Okay. So you're okay. So if, if I mean, sometimes people get in a panic if, like, the power's out for for a day, and that's not really a problem. Um, but they do. I know in the hospital we keep it. We do keep it refrigerated. Katie. Oh, the type, why did she get type 1 diabetes? Remember we talked about on Friday? What did we say on Friday? Right. Anybody else? That, you know, it's an unknown etiology, but what, what are some, some thoughts? It's a good question to review. What? Most of you were here on Friday. I recognize your faces. <laughs> Who can answer Katie's question? Type 1 diabetes. <laughs> type 1 diabetes. That's, you're right with type, with type 2 in kids that the more they eat fast food, the more likely they are. But I think Katie's general question is, what's the etiology of type 1 diabetes? And it's actually unknown, Katie, but there's some thoughts to what it probably is. What is it, Ashley? Right, it's some kind of autoimmune reaction where you're actually, your own immune system is attacking the beta cells in your, in the Isle of Langerhans of your pancreas. And what actually causes that, nobody, nobody knows. Uh, insulin administration, it, it's a sub-Q, Injection does not, it's not IM. It uses a very small, very short, very thin needle. Uh, the other way is with a pump, uh, and it's usually given in doses of a half to two units an hour. And there's also now um, a uh, nasal insulin that's being, uh, that's, that's coming out. Has anybody tried that? Anybody seen that? I know there's some there's some worries that it might have longer term longer term uh, respiratory effects, and so it's I haven't seen it being used with any any kids that I've taken care of, but I know it's out there. Okay, here's another question for you. Longest acting insulin is what? To hold you hold it up and it works better. These have radio, you know, we, the ones we used to have had, were infrared, and you actually did have to hold them up like this in order for them to register. These have radio controls, and so. But I've heard this can be a problem if somebody in the next room is using the same system. All of a sudden, you're getting like 186 responses uh, to, to items because the other class is pressing buttons. Everybody respond? Okay. Wow, okay. I guess I'm a good teacher. Everybody got that right. Good job. 
And what I did was I decided I was going to throw these questions in like just you know a few few minutes after you've done talking about something just to help say do you remember do you remember that? All right, insulin pumps, and here's a little diagram of what happens in an insulin pump. There's a little needle that rests, uh, it sits on the skin, and then the insulin is pumped in at a at, in small amounts, and there's usually some little electronic. Uh, device then that measures how much insulin is going to go in at, at what time. Um, some of these are now learned, being connected with glucose monitors. There's a glucose watch that can actually uh, check uh, periodically your, your blood glucose and then, and then signal to the pump that you're, you're getting a little high and you need more or if you're getting a little low, don't, don't, don't squirt out as much. Uh, has anybody used an insulin pump or taking care of somebody with one? Oh, you have one. Okay, anything you want us to know about it? Okay, you set a basal rate, which is what for you, let's say? Well, they're all, it's just going to be different. Okay. Oh, different times of day. Okay, and the, with boluses for you eat. So you have a background squirting out at, that's going to continue certain amounts. And then at mealtime, do you press the button for the meals or does it? Okay. Oh, okay. So it's doing the calculations for you. Dana said you put it, you put in the blood glucose that you've measured, the amount of carbs you've eaten, and it does the calculation. It's programmed with your correct your particular correction factor, so it knows how much to do. Um, we can we used insulin pumps generally because they are considered a little more complex. They have a little more care involved. Um, we usually kids won't get assigned an insulin pump unless they show that they're pretty capable of taking care of themselves. They have to be very good in the self-care and being able to monitor themselves. They have to be pretty good with their diet um, because they have because it is a little more complex to understand this um, equipment. So if you have kids, once they're over um, about, I've seen it looks like eight, nine, ten range if they're smart interested you know good they, I've seen them use the pumps no no problems I've also seen high schoolers that still can't manage a pump because they just have they just have such hard time managing their own care so you're you know if you're a good candidate for it uh, a lot of a lot of people are going to the pumps it's a lot easier than um, drawing out the drawing out the insulin but you still have to carry bottles of insulin around for tra for just in case or like if you traveled somewhere, would you take you would take some needles with you and right, just so you have some kind of backup. Um, yeah, this is here's an example. I was telling you this this uh, paradigm pump uh, came out oh I guess a year or two ago that uh, connects. It has a uh, glucose monitoring itself. Uh, it monitors. Like with yours, you have to check your own blood glucose, uh, or does the pump check the blood glucose? No, you check it. Yourself. You check it yourself. This one, the pump actually checks it, and then determines the, you know. So there's there's less intervention required. 
Um, when you do give insulin, it's given in sub-Q sites, so make sure you understand the difference between sub-Q sites and NIM sites, and we do try to, try to rotate them, uh, move them around, don't keep using the same sites. One of the problems with the old, can't get off that guy's hiney there. We can't, <laughs> I was like, I've seen enough, please. Um, one of the um, problems with the old animal insulins was they would really, they would cause a lot of problems at the injection sites. Uh, and, they, and even the humalogs will. If you keep injecting, when you're, if you keep doing the same place, sometimes, uh, particularly, uh, some people just get used to, you know, you're right-handed, so you always get used to using it on just one side rather than another side where it's more, where it's more difficult to use. And so they can start to have hardening in the areas where, uh, where you see it and scarring, bruising, things like that. So the idea is, is that you should try to rotate. And this is an example where you, you could make, you could sort of imagine different, different areas and so that you're going around and around. Yes, Mike? With the pump? Uh, the pump is moved to different, I don't think, you don't put the pump in the same spot every time, right? Every three days, you move it to a different. Yeah, like you okay, so with the pump, you don't leave it. You can leave it in for up to three days, but then you're moving it to different abdominal. If it's still just in the abdomen, so um, right. Oh, okay. So you can use some of the back areas, okay. And that's what I imagine is recommended, so that you're not always always just using the same same spot. Um, there is, I've, I've seen some, um, some things, sometimes you see written about the um, uptake of insulin is, is better in the, in the abdomen, although I, don't, I have seen some, some studies that say that's probably not really true, that other, other sites um, are pretty, are, are okay. Insulin syringes, uh, generally they've uh, been standardized now to 100 units per milliliter. This is a problem in a lot of pediatric settings because we have kids sometimes getting very, very tiny amounts. If you're only getting two units, you will see that a syringe, a 100 unit per milliliter syringe, it's very, very hard to even see two milliliters on there. So they have smaller syringes that have larger, that are still in this, in this 100 units to a milliliter, but they're, um, they're made a little bit smaller so that you can see the, the two uh, easier because it's very, it can be very hard. Um, but these, these needles are like 27 gauge needles. They're very fragile. They can bend easily. So if you're ever using one, make sure you just go, you know, real quickly in and don't move it around because they can, they, can, they can break off. Um, there was a lot of problem after 9-11 with allowing people to use the, the, use the needles or carry the needles with them on the plane. I don't know how you'd take over an airplane with an insulin syringe, frankly. But there was this worry. But most of that, as I think they've realized that that was pretty stupid. And you can take your, you can take insulin. But there was a problem because a lot of people were getting, they weren't allowed on the airplanes. And they would have to get off the airplane and then go find a drugstore and then buy more, buy more syringes because they weren't letting them put them on the airplane. It was pretty goofy. Um, so anyway, the, the, you're, you're familiar with the way uh, the syringes work. But these are specialized. That needle's already on there. It's very small. And it also is in, it has the 100 units so that you can read the units right off. 
So whatever, if somebody needed 20 units, you would just go right out to 20, and it's already calculated for you. And the reason I mention this is because there was also, there was a time when you could buy two different kinds of syringes. There was 40 units per milliliter, just to make your life more complicated. And there was a lot of mistakes and a lot of things done. The advantage was with small doses, the, the 40 unit per milliliters were actually um, easier to read, um, but people made mistakes. Um, we've been going pretty long. Why don't we stop now, uh, come back at 11 o'clock, and we will continue.